Father in heaven, we make that our prayer. We just want you. We acknowledge our dependence upon you as our father and your kids. We desire to make known the fact that we need you and to make known the fact that we want you. And now I ask that as we interact with you through your word, will you guide us and lead us? Will you instruct us and encourage us? Will you challenge us and change us? And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So did that prayer that I just prayed, did that do anything? Did that make any difference? Did that really matter? I mean, we come in week after week and we incorporate prayer into our worship services and intentionally do so and because we believe that we're connecting with the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. But do we really believe in our hearts that when we pray we're conversing with God Almighty? Do, do we really get that? And I think if we're honest, sometimes we say, well, yeah, overall we intellectually comprehend what's going on and say, yes, that's what's happening. But there are moments where we wonder if that's really going on, especially when things are difficult. Is God really here? Is he really there? Does this thing called prayer really, really work? And it can cause up all sorts of different things, but that's just not the half of it. It could also cause up feelings of guilt. I should pray more. Or shame. You know, why don't I pray more? You need to pray more. Of all these other con- ideas of confusion, of I don't, you know, some are here and we're like, I don't even know how to pray. I don't know how you talk to God. You guys at church seem to do that, but I don't know how to have that conversation. So when we talk about prayer, there's so many things that are brought up. So when I say that we're going to focus on prayer these next couple weeks, all sorts of thoughts can come running through your mind. There might be thoughts of relief and excitement that maybe we'll learn and grow. There might be thoughts of no, I wish we'd talk about something else. I don't like talking about that because I know that I need to do it more. Or there may be thoughts of that just sounds boring. Why would we talk about that? But the truth is, when we pray as Christians, we come alive. And part of the reason is because when we are on our knees before God, we are the most true form of ourselves When we're on our knees before God, we are the first true form of ourselves. Picture those times when life just crushes you and you feel like you're being crushed and you go before God and you say, God, please, you have to do something. You you pour out your heart in that difficult moment before God. In that moment, you are your most true self. Because in humility, in vulnerability, in truth, you are going before God acknowledging your need for him and acknowledging who he is as your maker. It's in those times that we really come alive. And the question I want to ask this morning is, what if prayer could change? What if Instead of this place of confusion or boredom or guilt or shame, what if when we looked at prayer and thought of prayer, we saw love unimaginable? What if when we got before God and we took time to stop our world and to really focus and spend time with him and talk with him, we experienced love unimaginable? What if in those times 
we experience peace unexplainable. What if it was when we got into those moments where we pause and we think and we begin to engage with God, it's almost like our hearts are grabbing onto His. And in trust, we understand who He is and that He has all things planned and He knows all that's going on and He holds all things together. And we really believe that. And in that moment, we find peace unexplainable regardless of what's happening in the world around us or in our own personal lives. And what if when we thought about prayer instead of those things, we thought about hope unshakable? What if prayer could be a place where regardless of how bad it looks, we go before God and we find a hope that picks us up and carries us on and pushes us through? Isn't that a whole lot better picture of prayer? Love, unimaginable, peace, unexplainable, hope, unshakable. I think this morning what Jesus wants to do is he wants to take wherever we are in our thoughts of prayer and change it to be more like that. I think this morning he wants to come and have some interaction with us, Crossview Church, to say, I want to show you what prayer can do and what prayer really is. I think he wants to open our eyes to realize that prayer is a conversation friend to friend where we connect to his goodness. If you look on our bulletin or website where we talk about who we are as a church, we have some statements listed that make up our DNA. And we say these are the things we want to be marked by. We want to be a transforming community that's marked by these things. And one of the things that we want to be marked by is devoted in prayer. And we like to take one of those statements and focus on it through the year. And this year we're going to be focusing on this one, that we are devoted in prayer because we want to be a church that grows deeper in this thing called prayer where we are more and more devoted to God in prayer. But to do that, we need to have a real clear understanding of what's happening. We're in a series called True Disciple, and a true disciple knows that prayer though it's something you grow into, is a connection to God's goodness. It's a connection to his goodness that brings life. And so that's what we want to take a look at this morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to the book of Luke. That's where we're going to be anchoring this morning. If you're new to the Bible, if you Luke's in the New Testament, if you find Matthew and then go to the right, go Matthew, Mark, Luke. I'll be in the chapter... Mark 11, if you're using a Bible here in our worship center, I'll be on page 922, and if you're an app person, this is all in our church center app with notes there for you, so you can look onto that as well. In this chapter, Jesus' disciples are going to him, and they're asking him to teach them something. They're asking him to teach them how to pray. So Jesus is there, and his disciples come. They say, teach us how to pray. And this is significant because there is nothing else we see in Scripture where the disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to do something except prayer. The disciples never went to Jesus and say, hey, teach us how to raise the dead. They never went to him and said, hey, teach us how to teach the Bible like you do. Teach us. The only thing we see the disciples asking Jesus to teach them is they went to him and said, teach us how to pray. And you have to ask yourself the question, why would they do that? And I think it's because they saw Jesus pray in a way that they never saw anyone else pray ever. And they also saw what happened when he went and prayed. 
There are many times they'd wake up in the middle of the night and see Jesus isn't here. Where did he go? He's not here. And then he comes back and they realize, oh, he was out all night praying with, to his heavenly father. And they probably sat there and said, how does he do that? All night long praying to God. They probably said, you know, I start and I get 30 seconds in and I'm done with words. And they go all, he goes all night long. How does he do that? And they see the difference it makes. And then they see many, many times he rose up early in the morning and went out to pray. And it made a difference. And so it intrigued them to the point they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. That was their chief ask. And he goes through and he gives us what has been commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, as a model, as a pattern. But then he dives into a story that I want to talk about this morning. You know how you're with a group of people and you're starting to tell stories and you start to tell jokes and someone says, hey, hey, I got, I got one for you. How about this? So they asked Jesus to pray, and now Jesus says, hey, hey, I got one for you. And he goes in, and he tells the story. So let's take a look at the story, verses 5 to 8. Jesus said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Jesus says, I have the story. Suppose a friend came into town unexpected and you have to provide for him. And here's what happened to this person that this took place and uh, really happened. To understand the context, you understand the story, you have to understand the pieces of the puzzle and the context that this was spoken in. This was spoken in an Eastern context. And in the context that this happened, hospitality was so much more important than probably it is in our U.S. culture. Hospitality made or broke you in terms of your reputation and your favor within a community. Hospitality was king. It was you definitely had to serve. If someone was on a journey that you knew and they stopped at your house, you had to give them something. You had to bring them in. It wasn't an option for that person who all of a sudden had this journey person on a journey stop by and say, hey, I'm here. They couldn't say, oh, you know what, sorry, I don't have anything. I can't really help. Um, you're going to have to go on to the next house or to your next friend or relative. No, that wasn't an option. When it came to you, you had to provide. Hospitality was a sacred duty. And in this culture, in many cultures today in the East, it's still like that. I remember when I was in the Air Force serving in Saudi Arabia, and, and we go into work, and a lot of the Saudi Arabian people, our counterparts in the Saudi Arabian Air Force are there, and they would often say, friend, come have tea. And that was like a priority before we did any work, come and have tea. And they'd sit, and they say, I call you my friend. Tell me about your life. Tell me what's happening. Tell me about your day. And there was a hospitable action that had to be exchanged. It's how they live. And so this guy was in his house, and 
one of his friends who is on a journey shows up and says, here I am. He's unexpectedly uh, knocks on the door and says, it's been a long journey. I need a break. Can I stay here for the night? Feed me some bread. The problem is the person whose house he came to didn't have what he needed to give in order to be hospitable. So he's in this place where it creates a problem. He says, so what am I going to do? In the Eastern world, when the, suns were, the sun was up and it was daytime, all the doors in the houses were open. And it was mostly because it was hot, and so they wanted to keep the doors open. But when the doors were open in this culture, in this context in which Jesus is teaching, you could come in to a door if it's open. It's kind of like the door is always open to anybody. So when their door was open, anybody who was anybody could walk right into the house and start talking about life. And everybody was in each other's life, and everybody was in each other's business. Because when the doors are open, you just interacted, and you went from house to house to house. That's how they lived. So when there's an open door, it's open to me, and I can walk into that door. However, when the door was closed in that culture, at night the sun went down. In the desert, uh, when the sun goes down, it gets cold. The sun went down, they would close the door, meaning we're preparing for the night. And the whole family, most of the houses were a one-room house, the whole family would come in on the floor, sleep on the floor around the fire, and be done for the night, and the closed door signal, do not disturb. We're in bed. And the last thing you wanted to do once you buttoned everything down and you were down to sleep is to have someone come and pound on that door. Because a lot of you parents who have babies, you know what happens when there's loud noises and a baby sleeping. That baby starts crying, and the kids wake up, and, and the neighborhood is such that it's house to house to house, so then there's a ruckus, and then before you know it, the whole neighborhood's awake. And so when they tucked in for the night, they didn't want to be bothered. It was like the do not disturb on the door. That's what's going on here in the story that Jesus is telling. That's what's happening. This guy had an unexpected guest come. He and his wife are trying to figure out how we're going to take care of this and do what we're supposed to do and be hospitable and help them. And she doesn't know what to do, so he goes to his friend's house at night and wakes him up to borrow bread. It was a big deal that he would do this, that he would think about this. It probably stressed him out. He probably thought, what am I going to do? Should I go to the house? Should I not? The visitor from the journey comes in. He's at his house. He doesn't know what to do. He looks at his wife. He says, we don't have any bread. What are we going to do? And he says, I'll go to Charlie's house and see if Charlie can give me some bread. And his wife probably said, you can't do that now. The door's closed. You go there, you're going to wake up the whole family and wake up the neighbor, and then everyone's going to know that we didn't have bread for this traveler, and they're going to know that we weren't able to be hospitable. See, that's what's going on in Jesus' story. Why would he go anyway and get bread? What was his motivation? Verse 5 says, friend... Lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine is on a journey. His motivation is friendship. Friendship is what is moving him to do this. Friendship is what is having him go. He's not going there out of selfishness. He's going there out of necessity. He realizes he has to be hospitable to this traveler. And he has nothing. 
And so he probably sits there in that moment and says, you know, Charlie would probably do that for me, or I'd do that for him if he came knocking on my door, so maybe he'll do that for me. And he goes and he takes this risk, and on the basis of friendship, he is motivated not by selfishness, but by necessity. By necessity he goes. So what do you think is Jesus' point in this story? He asks them to teach him about prayer, and he launches into this story about a traveler and hospitality and late at night and interrupting people. What is his point in this story? If you've been around churches for a long time and you're familiar with this story, a lot of false assumptions are created when we read this story. It's one of those verses that if you don't understand what's going on, it trips you up and it creates a false assumption about what God is like. And then that snowballs into, well, no wonder why we don't want to pray, because if God's like that, then this is just a futile exercise. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 again. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, people read that, and they say the point of Jesus' story is that we have to be persistent when we pray. And there's merit to that. There's other places in the Bible that talk about persistence. In 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, it says pray without ceasing. Never stop praying. There's lots of places in the Bible that talks about being persistent, but that's not what's happening in this story here. It looks like it, but that's not what's happening People read this and they say, oh, so if you want something from God, you have to ask, ask, ask. You have to badger him. You have to keep begging him. You have to go before him. And you have to keep asking because you need to overcome God's reluctance to help you. That's how people read this text. And that's a false assumption. That's not what the text means. But if you interpret the text like that, Not only does it dishonor God and his character, it ruins your prayer life because you have this false assumption about what God is like. And it's a false assumption to think that God is reluctant or hesitant or is not interested in taking care of the needs of his children. That's not what this text is teaching. But that's how we often look at it, that we have to work it up. What people don't understand is what's happening in the story that Jesus is telling. Is He's telling the story not as a comparison. He's telling the story as a contrast. He's not saying that God is like the friend who put away his friends for the night and put the do not disturb sign, and you have to be like the other friend to knock on the door. He's not comparing the story to us. He's putting it up as a contrast, because in a moment what he's going to lay out is he's going to say, if that's what friends would do, how much more would your loving father not play that game of reluctance and badgering, but be quick and willing and lovingly interested in helping his children? See, that's what Jesus is telling the story for. That's what's coming out of this. How much more would your heavenly father respond to the needs of his children? 
The guy got bread one way or another. There may have been banging on the door. The kids may have woke up. He may have woke up the neighborhood. There may have been all this ruckus. But at the end of the day, friendship won. At the end of the day, the badgering all took place. But in Jesus' story, what he's saying is, it's not like that when you come before God with your need. Jesus is teaching in this story is that what he wants his disciples to hear is how much more they can know in their hearts that God, who is our heavenly friend, will never ever refuse anyone who comes to him with their need in prayer. That God will be quick to do that. It's not that we have to badger God, control God, push God, wake God up, and make a case for our prayer need to say, look, God, you should really do this. And that's what some people take away from this passage. It's the contrast to that. Jesus is saying, your heavenly Father loves you so incredibly much. If this is how human relationships work, you can't understand how eager, how much he's anticipating, how much he loves it when his children go before him and ask him for things on behalf of themselves. Jesus is saying if human relationships work like this, where eventually friendship wins the day, how much more will God, your perfect friend, your perfect father, respond to your need with joy and love because his children are running to him? See, that's the picture of prayer we need to grab. And if there's three words for you to remember during this, time, this sermon, if you take away anything, take away how much more would God react to that? Comparison is not what's happening here. It's contrast. And if an imperfect human responds out of that friendship, how much more will a perfect, loving God respond? And in Jesus' story, the one who goes and makes the request, who bangs on the door and disturbs that family, he's trusting in his friendship with that individual. He's trusting he will come through. He's taking a risk. He says, I'm going to give this a shot. And what Jesus wants to cultivate in his disciples is the fact that it is impossible for a friend to not respond out of that. It is impossible for a normal human being to refuse helping a friend in need. That's the main point of this. It's not you must badger God. It's not you must beg him. The true point is the contrast, that how much more would God respond? And then Jesus gives us two instructions from this. Look at verses, first verse 9, and then we'll look at verse 10. Well, let's look them together, 9 and 10. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. We see two instructions that Jesus is laying out here that should mark our prayer. First, he's saying, since God is like that, since he's eager to respond to your need, go to him eagerly, quickly, consistently. 
He says in there, make it a habit, make it a lifestyle of running to God with your need. The way this is really written in the original is ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. It's a continuous thing. It's this relationship that's happened between this person and your father. Jesus says, make it your habit to continually come because it brings joy to God and life to you. Don't hold back. You should ask with an engaged mind. Some people say, what if I ask the wrong thing in prayer? Or what if I pray something I'm not supposed to? Leave that up to God. You're not going to knock him off his throne with something you do wrong. If you pray something you're not supposed to pray, you think God's going to be shattered and the whole thing's done, then you're cut off for life, you can never ask again. No. God's a loving father, and he wants to teach his children. He's the master teacher, the master parent. He knows exactly what he needs. So just boldly ask. Go before him and be with him unhindered untethered. I remember when my daughter Abby got her driver's license and she passed the test and we came home and we weren't home more than 30 minutes and she came to me and with that look in her eye where she had a plan. The plan was laid out. She had it all set. She just needed one thing, the key fob. That's all she needed. And she eagerly came and was so excited to dive into this plan. You see, God wants us to come eagerly, looking, saying, we know God could come through in this circumstance. We'll go to him. And he loves that. The second thing we see here is that God responds as a loving father. Look at verses 11 to 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, and here you're really going to see the contrast, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? How much more? There's the contrast. What Jesus is saying, to put it in our day and age, if you took your child to McDonald's to get an Egg McMuffin and you went through the drive-thru and you ordered the Egg McMuffin and then the Egg McMuffin comes and then you pull into the parking lot and then you get out of the car, you take the Egg McMuffin, you pop the trunk, you throw the egg on the ground, you put a scorpion in that McMuffin, you put it back, you close the trunk, you get back in the car and say, here, have a scorpion McMuffin. And the kid freaks out and gets scared and runs away, right? What are, you, what's, what are you doing? Jesus says, of course you wouldn't do that. Who in their right mind would do that? And God says, now you, who in the eyes of God and his perfection and holiness are comparatively evil people, know how to respond and take care of your child. How much more does your perfect holy, heavenly Father know how to respond to his children when they come before him in need. He says, this, you don't have to bang. You don't have to push and wake me up. You don't, I'm not reluctant to respond to you. How much more do I want to respond beyond what human beings would? Human beings react like this with each other, 
as a heavenly, holy God, I react on a totally different level. So much more grace, so much more love, so much more mercy, so much more power. And I love it when my kids come to me. See, when we understand that, prayer begins to change. Prayer becomes love unimaginable, peace unspeakable, hope unshakable. It changes how we view it. So we have to be careful when we read these scriptures because what comes is a great lie. You can take away a great lie from this if you don't grab on to what's happening. Jesus wants to cultivate in his disciples a confidence that out of their relationship with Jesus, God can be trusted and he can respond in love. So when we misinterpret this passage, it confirms false thinking about God that not only affects how we look at God, it affects how we pray. There are a lot of cultures and religions out there that have many practices and many gods and you have to appease these gods for your life to go well. And sometimes it's not just within the spectrum of non-Christian, it's in the spectrum of Christianity as well. I remember when we were missionaries in Portugal and we went to this um, shrine to Our Lady of Fatima and you walked in and, and there were these wax things that you can buy and there would be like a, a small wax foot and a small wax hand and a small wax heart and a small wax kidney And if you had a problem with your foot or your hand or your kidney, you grabbed and you bought one of these things and you went and you burned it in the shrine and it was to help bring healing to that spot. And as evangelical Christians, we look at that and we say, that's wrong. That's not scripturally accurate. And that's true. But don't we kind of do the same thing with our prayers? Have you ever bargained with God in your prayers? Have you ever said, you know, if I just go to church more, then this part of my life will come back into order. Or if I just try really, really hard not to sin this week, maybe my son will get healed and God will move and he actually will do something loving and kind to us and bring healing here and solve this situation. Maybe I have to be the one to put up my end of the bargain. Or maybe if I give more at church, God will bless my business and my business will flourish and become better. We tend to do this all the time. And it comes from a false assumption that gives birth to a great lie. We tend to bargain to get what we want. Or how many of you have thought this bad thing that I'm going through right now in my life is because I must have sinned somewhere huge down the line and now God is paying me back. Do you know where that line of thinking comes from? Do you know where that bargaining and prayer, what the root cause of that is? Do you know the root source of that kind of image of God? It's fear. And it's not the good kind of fear that we fear the Lord with. It's, it's the fear that we truly believe and think that God really doesn't care about me. 
that God really doesn't like me, that God really won't come and help me. And but that forms our construct about what God is like. And when we read verses like this and misinterpret it, we say, okay, God isn't concerned about what I want or what I need, and I have to really badger him to help me. He must not really love me very much. He must not really care about me very much. And it creates this great lie that covers, well, no wonder why we don't pray. No wonder why we don't give our hearts. Because prayer is something that puts us in front of a God that doesn't care. See, that's the great lie. That's why it's so important to accurately know what the Bible's teaching. When we believe that God does not care and to get him to help us, we need to coerce him or talk him into it. We lose sight about what God is like and we lose sight about what prayer is like. Thomas Aquinas said that fear makes a person turn inward in their soul. Fear makes a person turn inward in their soul. It closes somebody off to everything outside of them, other people, and even including God himself. God's saying, this is not what I'm like. And when we let fear turn us inward in our souls, we get to that spot where we can't risk. We can't trust. We don't believe he'll do that. And it closes us off from the amazing, loving relationship that God wants to have for us and the amazing, loving way that we can see him move on our behalf. And so as I wrap up, I just want to think, I just, as I think this through, I think one of the best things we can do to improve our prayer life is to renew our view of God. What is God really, really like? And as I was diving in this week, I thought this is a whole sermon series that I love to tackle sometime, but I can't do that here because it's snowing droves outside and we need to get moving. But it's important for us to renew our view of God because we pick up lies along the way that aren't really true. The first one I want to dive into is we can renew our view of God by looking at the heart of God. Looking at the heart of God. And I want to look at the heart of God by looking at a story in John chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to sum it up for you quickly. So Jesus is standing before the grave of his friend Lazarus. And he's about, Lazarus is dead. And he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he's standing there. The stone has been rolled away. The tomb has been exposed. He's getting ready to call Lazarus to wake up and come out. And he's there with Lazarus, his sisters, Martha and Mary, his dear friends. And it says in this passage, a two-worded verse that some of you know, that before Jesus called Lazarus out, it says what? Jesus wept. He cried. He didn't just cry like one tear down the face. He sobbed. And so you look at that and you say, why on earth was Jesus crying? He, in a matter of eight minutes or less, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Everything's going to be great. He knows what he's going to do. Why would he cry? Why would he weep? Why would he be sad right now? He should be ecstatic and say, hey, check this out. Watch what I'm going to do. But it says Jesus wept. When you don't understand a verse and you look at different commentators and, and Bible scholars to see, sometimes they all say the same thing. This is what this verse means. It's very clear and easy. Boom. In this one, it's not like that. The commentators have different opinions. 
And so you get one commentator that says Jesus wept because it was the first time he interacted with the result of sin in a broken world and he interacted with human death and he saw how it affects humanity and so it made him cry. You have another commentator that says he wept because he saw the lack of faith that those around him had, that they didn't know who he was and what he can do and so it moved him to tears as he saw their lack of faith. There's another commentator that I'm kind of going with that I like. And he said, the reason Jesus wept is because he was perfect. And in that moment, even if it was only for eight minutes, Jesus wanted to enter into the pain of the people he dearly loved. Because that is an act of love. And Jesus is perfect. And one of the things he's perfect in is how to deal and be in relationship. So he wept. You see, that's not a heart of a God that says, if you have a need, you better come and try to beg it and get it out of me, and maybe I'll help you. That's the heart of God that wants to be involved in the lives of his children in such a way that even if I'm going to enter into the only eight minutes of hopelessness there is, I'm going to go do that. That's what kind of God we have. You grab onto that, it'll radically change your view of God and your prayer life. The next thing we look at to change our view of God is our affections, the power of God. Do you know that the power of God can change your affections? Jonathan Edwards was a theologian who said, our affections are our soul-pleasing desires. Those are the things that we long and we want, and God is strong enough in his power, he can change those. As we go before him, God, change my want-tos to want to love you more and to leave sin behind. Change the affections of my heart that so quickly run after sinful things. Make them run after you. That changes our view of God when we have that understanding that he can do that and we ask for that to happen. And finally, the thing that renews our view of God is the word of God, his unchanging truth. This book is the thing that tells us what God is really like. Because he, it says, breathed it out of his own self and said, you want to know what I'm like? I'll breathe and give you my word. It's the perfect revelation of who I am. John Calvin said the word of God is like a school where we learn about what God is like. And then he said the word of God is like a divine thread that when you're thrown into a dark maze of life and you don't know how to get out, this thread pulls you out and gets you out of the darkness. And he also said it was like a pair of spectacles because when you look at God's word, the things that are blurry in life come into focus. We renew what God is like when we look at his word. God is loving, God is gracious, God is generous, and he loves it when his children run to him. Because it gives them life. And because in his presence, all fear, shame, and guilt are gone. We run to his word like this one in Romans 8, 38, 39. It says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you 
from the love of God when you're in relationship with him. So I want you to do something this week. I want you to begin this journey of prayer that we're going to launch in on by praying a real simple prayer every day this week. It has to be the foundation as we build upon this idea of us becoming a church devoted in prayer. If that's the building we have to build upon, we have to get the foundation right. And this prayer that I'm going to ask you to pray gets the foundation right. And this is the prayer. This week, every single day, between now and Sunday, pray, Jesus, help me to know your love for me more deeply. Take a picture of the screen, write it down on the paper. I don't care what you have to do. But as the Crossview Church family, this week, let's pray each day this one-sentence prayer and trust that God is going to hear it because he's going to be eager to do this and that he's going to bring us into this whole thing that's going to change our view of God and motivate us to go before him in prayer. Jesus, help me to know your love for me more deeply. Let's make that our journey this week as Crossview people as we dive into this thing called prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the truth of your word that corrects our thinking. Lord, I thank you that your word can be trusted more than our feelings. Your word can be trusted more than our experiences. Your word is more solid and trustworthy than the things that we live through in this life. Because your word supersedes that. God, I ask that you would open our eyes to the reality of who you are. And God, if there's any false images we have of you, would you forgive us for those? We confess them and would you rid ourselves of those and correct our thinking and our feeling and our knowing that we could walk fully in who you truly are. And God, I pray this week that you will show us as a church how loved we are by you that we would grow in that this week. And so, God, we present all this before you now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.